Father, we thank you, Lord, for this chance that we have to be able to come before you and, Lord, to hear your word. And, Lord, when we, when we hear this passage, I, I pray, Lord, that by the work of your spirit, you would help us all to, to place ourselves in the garden. And, Lord, that you'd help us to, to be warned as to, to our eternal state, as to our nature apart from the work of your sovereign grace. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us as we study this passage together to, to see the tactics that our enemy uses, the tactics that he is using to this day. And Lord, I pray that, that you would help us as, as we are warned in your word to, to flee to Christ, our Lord and Savior, the only one that, who can rescue us from this deadly peril. And we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Would you please stand as we read our passage for this morning? This morning I'm going to be speaking of the, the fall of, of man uh, from the first half of, of Genesis 3, from verses 1 to 13, but I'm, I'm going to read the entirety of the passage. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and, and look at verses 13 to 24. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was, a, it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Sorry. She took of its fruit and ate, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the, fruit of the tree from which I commanded that you are not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will 
Surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, friends, our last two sermons weren't about sin. They, were, they weren't about sin because sin hadn't happened yet. But this passage, in this sermon, it's all about sin. Because in this passage, we see the very first sin. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25, we talked about life in the Garden of Eden. We talked about the way that the, the Lord God created man and, and cared for man and made a covenant with man. Also, his creation of woman in the garden. In Genesis 3, the peace and joy and faith and love of the garden is shattered by conflict, despair, fear, shame, and hatred. Genesis 2 describes paradise. Genesis 3 describes paradise lost. This is a true story. This is a historical fact. This is a tragedy that is unsurpassed in human history. Apart from another tragedy that took place almost 2,000 years ago. A tragedy that this first tragedy necessitated. The New Testament repeatedly points back to the, these actual events as the root of human sinfulness. This event is the reason why you are a sinner. Prior to this event, nothing bad had ever happened on the face of earth. But after this event, nothing will be good for thousands of years. So into God's good garden enters the serpent. Moses describes the serpent for us. He describes the serpent, the serpent as, as crafty, more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This was an actual serpent made by God. Now crafty here, it, well, crafty in the Bible can be presented as either positive or negative, depending on the context. Here it's obviously negative. The serpent was cunning, as we're about to find out. But as James McKeon explains, this is not the belligerent, aggressive kind of, of evil. 
but of the, the subtle and, and seductive kind. The serpent speaks. Now that should have rung alarm bells for Eve. Animals don't generally speak. But the serpent's malevolent genius comes from our arch foe, from Satan. It seems that sometime between the end of the sixth day when the, the Lord had, had called his creation very good, sometime between that point and the events of Genesis 3, that, that Satan had fallen. The scriptures describe Satan as, as a holy angel who, who fell from heaven in his prideful rebellion. You can read about that in Exodus 28 and in, in Isaiah, oh sorry, in Ezekiel 28. In Isaiah 14, we, we read that, that, that this, this angel sought to exalt himself above God. And so he was banished from heaven, consumed with hatred for God and all that God loves. Now, although the serpent is never identified explicitly as Satan in the Old Testament, the curse on the serpent that we read in, in chapter 3, verse 15, reveals that the offspring of the, whim, of the woman will be at war with the offspring of Satan. Now, although most women don't like snakes, that's not at all what is being said here. There is something far, far greater that is being said here. I believe it was, it was Tertullian called this the, the proto-euangelion, the, the, the first gospel, the first hint of the gospel is seen right there immediately after the fall in Genesis, or in, in yeah, Genesis 3, verse 15. Satan entered a real beast, a beast of the field made by God and spoke to Eve. And the ensuing diabolical dialogue sends the whole of creation into a tailspin. This part of the narrative in, in verses 1 to 5 can be described as, as Satan's temptation. Now listen carefully as we expose his tactics. He only speaks twice here, but in these two lines, we find enough for Eve to be deceived. This makes sense because Satan is, the, is a liar and he is the father of lies. Jesus tells us that in John 8, 44. So listen carefully for Satan's tactics. His first tactic is, is questioning God's word. Questioning God's word. He says to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice First, the serpent has dropped the covenant name of God. It's, it's not the Lord God, as is the, the case for the rest of this passage, but, but simply God. So already there's, there's a change, and that, and that change is intentional. Moses is, is telling us something here, that, that the, the covenant relationship between, he's dropped the covenant name of God because the covenant relationship between God and human beings is under assault. He's alleging also that, that God's word is subject to our judgment. The Lord God had been quite clear in his instructions. Flip back with me, and you will, to, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of any tree, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
Very explicit, very clear. And so Satan's question to Eve, did God actually say you may not eat, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? It's, it's, a, it's questioning God's word. It's saying that, that, that now it's, it's putting Eve in the position of judging God's word. Putting Eve above the word of God. This also reveals another tactic of Satan. Adding to God's word. Do you, see the, do you see that there in the exaggeration? You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Satan is here drawing Eve into a debate on his terms. This obscures God's generosity. He's not presented as the loving God who gives good gifts to his creatures, but is presented really in the opposite light. The seeds of doubt are now sown in Eve's heart. So she replies, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now Eve should not have been listening to the serpent in the first place. Remember that back from, from Genesis 1, that the Lord God had given them dominion, had given Adam and Eve dominion over the animals. She, she could have and should have rejected everything that this this Satan-inhabited serpent was saying. She could have overcome him, but instead she's, she's nibbling at the bait. And now she, like the serpent, adds to God's word. Do you see that? She says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That was never said. That was never the intention. The actual touching of the tree was not part of God's prohibition. It was only you shall not eat of the tree the fruit of the tree. She's adding to the word of God. Now, now she very likely does not have the same malicious intent as, the, as Satan did. She's being deceived. But notice here also that, that, she, that as the serpent didn't, neither is she using the covenant name of God. She's echoing the same name for God that the, that the Satan-inhabited serpent had just used. She refers to him merely as God. She also omits the words any and freely, which, which, placed the, which really had the, content, the commandment in the context of freedom. She also admits, omits the certainty of death. She omits the word surely. Now, I think it's safe to assume that, that Adam had clearly communicated the command to his wife. If he hadn't, then, then he would have been sinfully negligent in his responsibility. That would have been the first sin, but it's not. This is the first sin. What's coming up is the first sin. If this is a game of broken telephone, we're only at the second recipient, and, and already the message is drifting significantly from what God had originally spoken. Again, the nature of the, of the error here is in relaying this, this message highlights the fact that Eve is being deceived. She is being duped by this cunning serpent. So we've seen how the serpent questions God's word and then adds to God's word. And now the, the serpent responds with another of his favorite tactics, denying God's word. This is a full assault on God's word. He says, you shall not surely die. In direct opposition to what the Lord had said in, in Genesis 2, verse 17, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. He is denying God's word. 
He is out and out rejecting what the Lord God had said, but he doesn't stop there. And yet another one of his tactics in verse 5, he now questions God's character. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent here is insinuating that God doesn't want what's best for Adam and Eve. That, that God is not good and gracious. Instead, that he is, is selfish and jealous. He, that, that, that God is somehow preventing the man and, and the woman from achieving the same position as he has, as God has. He's playing to their pride, putting them on center stage, saying that, that it's, it's suggesting that life is all about them. Now, when you think about the fall of Satan, remember that it was in his pride that he was seeking to rise above God, and now he is tempting Eve in exactly the same way that he fell. But as any good liar will tell you, if you want someone to believe your lie, just throw a little bit of truth in there. So that, it, so that it seems palatable, that it seems like it's true. And so with, there, with these three counterclaims that the serpent makes, that you will not die, your eyes will be opened, and you will gain knowledge, all, all, three, of these, all three of these counterclaims that the serpent makes against what God had said, there's all and always an element of truth. He's very wise. He's very cunning in what he does. Friends, it's vital that you understand Satan's tactics. He questions God's word. He adds to God's word. He denies God's word. And he questions God's character. And he's been doing this for thousands of years. It's worked for him so far. If it works, you don't need to change your tactic. Why stop now? We are still falling for his schemes when we question God's word. When we question truths of God's word that have been established for millennia. When we question the interpretation of clear passages. When, when we give credence to those false teachers who deny God's word. Friends, this is why the doctrine of biblical inerrancy is so vitally important. We must understand that God's word is inerrant from the beginning to the end. If you don't set that as, as, a, as one of your chiefest presuppositions, then you, like Eve, will be deceived into sinning. God's word is inerrant. We're also still falling for Satan's schemes when we add to God's word. When we listen to the false teaching of the cults, that add to the canon. Or when we believe that, that God speaks to us through impressions or, or words from the Lord and not specifically from the word of the Lord. We're adding to his word. And friends, this is why the doctrine of biblical sufficiency is so important. We have everything that we need to know from Genesis to Revelation. The 66 books of the Bible, the closed canon of God's word is all that we need for life and godliness. We do not need to add to God's word. We must not add to God's word or pay attention to anyone who does. We're still falling for Satan's schemes when we deny God's word. 
when we, do, when we reject passages of Scripture that we don't feel comfortable with, or, or when, we, when we underemphasize passages that, that we don't feel comfortable with, then, then we, are, we are denying God's Word. And this is why the doctrine of biblical authority is so important. That the Word of God is, is given to us. It is authoritative. We sit under it. We do not sit in judgment of God's Word. God's Word sits in judgment of us. So the serpent has succeeded in his nefarious mission. He has done what he set out to do. The desire for the forbidden fruit has been sparked in Eve's heart. She is now drawn to the fruit in a way that she never was before. She sees, sees three things about the fruit. Look at verse 6. In her mind, this, this fruit is now good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. It's desired to make one wise. Now, interestingly, this word that is for desire that is used here is the same word that is used in the, the command against covetousness. This desire is a form of covetousness. But notice, too, that these three things were things that Eve already had. Go back to Genesis 2, verse 9. She saw that this, this tree, this forbidden fruit, was good for food. Well, the Lord God had given them every tree that was good for food. She, she saw that this fruit was a delight to the eyes. Well, well, the Lord God had given them every tree that was pleasant to the sight. Additionally, she already had wisdom that came from a holy fear of the Lord. And so she was about to sacrifice what she already had. As a result of the blessing that she had in her relationship with the Lord God for a corrupt version of those very same things. Ultimately, she wanted to eat the forbidden fruit because in her newly awakened pride, she wanted to be like God. And in this, she was becoming like Satan. But again, this, this desire to be like God, she was already like God. We had all, she was already like God in the sense that she was made in God's image. We see that from Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, that the man and the woman were made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, he created them. But that too would be sacrificed by the ensuing sin. In 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, the apostle gives a warning that, that picks up on these aspects of the fruit that Eve was tempted with. She, again, she saw that it was good for food, it was delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. John warns us in, in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now hear this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whatever does the will of God abides forever. So, so do you see that there? 
Do not, do not love the world with its corrupt desires, with the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And each of these desires were desires that Eve was tempted with. But instead of fleeing from the temptation, she embraced it. She embraced it. And so here comes man's transgression. Moses presents the actions of the man and the woman in rapid-fire fashion. She took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. And in their act of unity in sin, the man and the woman were creating disunity with God. And they were sowing the seeds of every act of disunity that would ever follow. All of the children who have rebelled against their parents, all the arguments between husbands and wives, all of the tension between blacks and whites, all the wars of the nations, all the wickedness of the whole human race can be traced back to this first sin. The covenant of works is broken. And Adam and Eve, prior to this point, had been able to sin and able to not sin. But because Adam fell, he was now no longer able to refrain from sin. He was no able, now, now no longer able to not sin. Because Adam represented us as our federal head, because he represented us as our first Father, because of his sin, every one of, his of Adam's offspring is now born in sin. Every one of Adam's offspring is now born not able to refrain from sinning. Every child of Adam is without true free will because every child of Adam is born with a sin nature. Every child of Adam is, is free to choose, but only to choose which sin they're going to engage in. They're not free to choose the good, not free to choose to serve God. Every human being born after the fall is unable to choose God and unable to serve God unless they are born again through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, a work of God's sovereign grace. It is only those who are born again who are like Adam and Eve in their pre-fall pre state, able not to sin. J Jesus tells us this in John 3.3. 3. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of God, monergistic. God does all that is required for our salvation. All we bring to the table for our salvation is our sin. In verse 7, Moses now presents the, the man and the woman's response in rapid-fire fashion, much as he had their response to their temptation. Their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves. They made coverings. So again, their eyes were opened. They, they knew that they were naked. That They felt new emotions that, that until now had been completely absent. They felt guilt. They felt shame. Remember what we read in, in Genesis 2.25 where Moses commented that the man and the woman were, the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Now they're naked and ashamed. But the nakedness here is not primarily a, an exposure of sin, but an exposure of wickedness. It's an exposure of wickedness. Derek Kidner calls this a grotesque anticlimax to the dream of enlightenment. 
Satan delivered on his wicked promise, but not in a way that they would have expected or wanted. They saw, but with corrupted eyes. Their vision of everything was now skewed, was now colored. They were, they were in a sense, spiritually blinded. Their, their understanding was perverted. They did know evil. Their own evil. I have seen evil and it is us. They obtained a form of wisdom in exchange for a form of death. Access to the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil would prevent their access to the tree of life. Death came. Spiritual death was instant. Physical death would come later. Then they added to their sin. But by trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, it, it was the right impulse, but in the wrong direction. This too was an act of rebellion. As they were trying to, to cover themselves instead of going to the Lord God to ask Him for covering. Again, the covenant of, gra- of works was broken. They would need another covenant, a covenant of grace. And then something happened. Something that before this moment would have been greeted by the couple with delight. But instead it brings terror. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They had once had intimate fellowship with God in the garden. And now at the sound of his presence in the garden, normally they would have run to greet him, but now they fled from him like rats scurrying for cover when the homeowner comes into the room and turns on the light. They were hiding from God. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The irony. The irony. They had sinned against the Lord God by eating from the one tree whose fruit the Lord God had forbidden. And now they sought cover among the good trees that the Lord God had provided. But their only hope would be another tree. Thousands of years later, as the Lord God would curse the one hanging on it. Adam and Eve knew their guilt And they hid from the Lord God once they had enjoyed holy, pure fellowship. And now they felt abject fear. Like the wicked of Revelation 6, 16, who call on the mountains and the rocks to to fall on them, to hide them from him who was seated on the throne and the lamb, they attempted to hide from the Lord God. Just think about their foolishness in trying to hide from the omniscient, all-seeing God. Like David asks in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me will be night. And the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. Maybe there are some here 
who are trying to hide from the Lord God right now. You have sinned in tasting what the Lord God has forbidden. That sexual pleasure, that website, that movie, that gluttonous approach to the table, that drink, anything that the Lord God has forbidden, whether entirely or in measure. You know your guilt. You know you are naked and exposed. Maybe you've tried to cover your guilt with your acts of penance by by trying to punish yourself with with extra fasting or extra prayer or, or putting a little extra in the offering plate. You've tried all of these things. You've tried all of those fig leaves to cover your guilt, but you know that it has not worked. Your conscience is being activated even now as I am speaking. Your sin will find you out. Don't just think of Adam and Eve's foolishness in trying to hide themselves. Think of your foolishness in not going to the Lord God about it. He already knows every vile detail. If you're caught in a pattern of unrepentant sin, confess it to the Lord. Ask his forgiveness. Confess it to a mature brother or sister and ask them for help and ask them for prayer to help you to overcome this guilt. In James 5.16, we're, we're exhorted, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is not confession to a priest. This is confession to a brother or sister who is a means of grace for you to help you to overcome your sin. But if you're here as an unbeliever, if you're here still trusting in your ability to cover yourself, then that is to no avail. There's only one. There's only one who can cover your sins. Now in verses 9 to 13, we have a second dialogue. And this one is in stark contrast to Satan's Satan's temptation of verses 1 to 5. This is the Lord God's interrogation. This is the Lord God's interrogation. So we've seen Satan's temptation. We've seen man's transgression. And now we're seeing the Lord God's interrogation. Adam and Eve now had knowledge of evil but their knowledge of good was corrupted. And they misunderstood what the Lord God was doing here in the garden. This is the act of the righteous God who must deal with sin, but it is also an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy. Donald Gray Barnhouse calls this the pursuing love of God. He would not leave them in their misery and nakedness. Friends, this is a rescue mission. Think about Adam and Eve's sin. First, from the Lord God's perspective. He is the holy God. He would have been perfectly just to cast them both immediately into everlasting torment in hell. Yes, he knew that it was coming. But the man and the woman that he loves so tenderly 
immeasurably more than the most devoted human father could love his own infant child. Adam and Eve are experiencing a catastrophe. And so the Lord God calls out to the man. Yes, it is to expose the man's sin, but it is also an act of profound grace and mercy. And the Lord God then takes the initiative. He asks, the Lord God asks, where are you? Not that he didn't know. Of course God knew where he was. This is a a question to, to draw Adam out, not a question to drive Adam away. Again from Barnhouse, the fleeing sinner can never escape the pursuit of love. This is the pursuit of God's love. The you in verses 9 and 11 is, is singular. God is first addressing Adam, implying that his is the greatest responsibility. And Adam's response in, in verse 10 is, is honest, well, at least partially honest, if nothing else. He, he was afraid. He was afraid. And he, he realizes that he's naked, and so he hid. But, but again, physical nakedness is not the reason why he hid. It is spiritual nakedness. Spiritual nakedness. It's not that his skin was exposed, but that his sin was exposed. But now think about this from the human perspective. Man's intimacy of relationship with God was shattered. It was obliterated. From man's perspective, it's gone. And so from man's perspective, from our perspective, this is the worst consequence of the fall. The worst of them all. So the Lord, again, knowing the truth, the whole time asks another question in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? He's implying the man could not have realized that he was naked unless something had happened, unless there had been some change in circumstances, some new development, some new awareness. But now the Lord God's interrogation moves to prosecution. He asks, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God already knew this. But even here, there's mercy. Victor Hamilton suggests that this question urges confession rather than condemnation. But Adam's not there yet in his heart. So instead of taking responsibility, he blame shifts. Verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the the fruit of the tree and I ate. He's blame shifting. The woman you gave me. He's blaming his wife for his sin. But he can't blame her. It's his own fault. She never twisted his arm behind his back and, and made him eat this fruit. She didn't force it down his gullet. He did it of his own, to that point, free will. But as if Adam blaming his wife is not bad enough, Who is Adam ultimately blaming here? He's blaming the Lord God. It's the woman you gave me. God, if you hadn't given her to me, I never would have sinned. That's that's what he's implying here, that it's God's fault. 
He's blaming God's good gift as the reason for his fall. Adam is saying to the Lord, you gave me the woman and she gave me the fruit. Friends, God is not to blame. Although God is sovereign over all things, he is never the author of sin. He is not ever the source of evil. And he is not morally responsible for this sin or any sin. Again, Adam and Eve chose to sin from their own free will. A free will that they sacrificed. A free will that that human beings have not had ever since. The Lord God does not even dignify Adam's excuse with a response. He turns to the woman in verse 13 and says, What is this you have done? And she plays the blame game too. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, it's true. Satan did deceive her. And and Paul is going to give the same assessment of of Eve's culpability. He says that, that the woman was deceived, but Satan cannot ever make anyone sin. It's never the devil made me do it. When you sin, it is coming from your own flesh. Yes, Satan is a tempter. But you are responsible for your own sin. Tell me, when your sin is exposed, do you blame shift? Do you blame shift? Or instead, do you take full responsibility? You could say, well, I shouldn't have yelled, but you shouldn't have made me angry. I shouldn't have looked at her, but she shouldn't have been dressed that way. I shouldn't have gone to that website, but I have needs. I shouldn't have stolen that, but I really wanted it. Does any of that sound familiar to you? If so, you are playing the same game that Adam and Eve played in the garden. It's like kids fighting in the playground. Hit me first. There is no excuse in repentance. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. If you are making excuses for your sin, any excuses, you are not repentant. No one can make you sin. Nothing can make you sin. You always have a choice. If sin comes, it is as a result of your own wicked desires. Because at that moment of your sin, you want something more than you want the Lord God. Don't blame anyone or anything else. Don't do what Adam did. Take full and complete responsibility for your own sin. The woman who was Adam's delight and was designed to, by God to be his helper in achieving blessing instead becomes his partner in crime. She participates in him with his sin. They're both guilty. There, there is no resolution here in this passage. 
This points to the judgment that is made against the man and against the woman and against the serpent in the next section. We're going we're to deal with that next week. Adam and Eve took and ate of the forbidden fruit. Their only hope was another who would come and say, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Friends, when Adam, our federal head, sinned, we all sinned. We are all guilty with Adam. Unless we repent and turn to Jesus Christ, the second Adam, we'll face eternal condemnation. The Lord God knew what was going to happen. But he also had a plan. He knew that Adam and Eve would, would take the bait, or that Eve would be tempted and that Adam would sin. God knew. But he also knew that he was going to provide a way of escape. He was going to provide a savior. A savior who would, who would fully obey the covenant of works. A savior who, who would fully love God with all of his heart and soul and mind. Who would love his neighbor as himself. If you are here this morning as a sinner, dead in your trespasses and sins like your first father Adam was, the invitation is for you to repent, to turn to Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and find life in him. For it is only in him that you can have life. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you that although you are holy and righteous and full of wrath for unrepentant sin, Lord, you're also loving and merciful and wise. And so we thank you that even here in this first sin, in this first rebellion of your creatures, Lord, we see your mercy. You came on a rescue mission. And we who are, are living as we do 2,000 years after the cross understand, Lord, that, that you came again on a rescue mission as the, the holy God took on human flesh and dwelt in the midst of a sinful creation who obeyed for us and who took the punishment that we deserved. Lord, help us. Help those who are who are saved to rejoice in this great salvation that we have in Christ. Help us, Lord, as we think of our sin, as we, as we feel the, the, the accusations of the enemy. Help us, Lord, to preach the gospel to ourselves and to rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ. But Lord, for those who are here, who, who are listening to this and do not yet know the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would grant the repentance leading to life and that they might too flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Jesus Christ, God incarnate. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.